Chapter Five, Section Three of the History of Mr. Polly by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Five, Section Three. Three. You ain't talking of going," cried Mrs. Larkins. Supper at eight. Stay to supper with us now you have come over," said Mrs. Larkins, with collaborating cries from Minnie. Have a bit of a walk with the gals, and then come back to supper. You might all go and meet Annie while I straighten up and lay things out. You're not to go touching the front room, mind," said Miriam. "Who's going to touch your front room?" said Mrs. Larkins, apparently forgetful for a moment of Mr. Polly. Both girls dressed with some care while Mrs. Larkins sketched the better side of their characters and then the three young people went out to see something of Stamton. In the streets their risable mood gave way to a self-conscious propriety that was particularly evident in Miriam's bearing. They took Mr. Polly to the Stamton Recreation Ground, at least that was what they called it, with its handsome custodian's cottage, its asphalt paths, its jubilee drinking fountain, its clumps of wallflower and daffodils, and so to the new cemetery, and a distant view of the Surrey Hills, and round by the gasworks to the canal to the factory, that presently disgorged a surprised and radiant Annie. "'Hello!' said Annie. It is very pleasant to every properly constituted mind to be the centre of an amiable interest for one's fellow-creatures and when one is a young man conscious of becoming mourning and a certain wit, and the fellow-creatures are three young and ardent and sufficiently expressive young women who dispute for the honour of walking by one's side, one may be excused a secret exultation. They did dispute. "'I'm going to have him now,' said Annie. "'You two have been having him all the afternoon. Besides, I've got something to say to him." She had something to say to him. It came presently. "'I say,' she said abruptly, "'I did get them rings out of a prize package.' Mm. "'What rings?' asked Mr. Polly. "'What you saw at your poor father's funeral. You made out they meant something. They didn't, straight.' "'Then uh, some people have been very remiss about their chances,' said Mr. Polly, understanding. "'They haven't had any chances,' said Annie. "'I don't believe in making oneself too free with people.' "'Nor me,' said Mr. Polly. "'I may be a bit larky and cheerful in my manner,' Annie admitted. "'But it don't mean anything. I ain't that sort.' Uh, right oh said Mr. Polly. Four. It was past ten when Mr. Polly found himself riding back towards Easewood in a broad moonlight, with a little Japanese lantern dangling from his handlebar and making a fiery circle of pinkish light on and around his front wheel. He was mightily pleased with himself and the day. There had been four ale to drink at supper mixed with ginger beer, very free and jolly in a jug. No shadow fell upon the agreeable excitement of his mind, 
until he faced the anxious and reproachful face of Johnson, who had been sitting up for him, smoking, and trying to read the odd volume of Purchase His Pilgrims, about the monk who went to Sarmatia and saw the Tartar carts. "'Not had a accident, Ilfrid,' said Johnson. The weakness of Mr. Polly's character came out in his reply. Uh, "'Not much,' he said. "'Pedal got a bit loose in Stamton, old man. Couldn't write it. So I looked up the cousins while I waited.' "'Not the Larkins lot?' "'Yes.' Johnson yawned hugely, and asked for and was given friendly particulars. "'Well,' he said, "'better get to bed. I've been reading that book of yours. Rum stuff. Can't make it out quite. Quite out of date, I should say, if you ask me.' "'That's all right, old man,' said Mr. Polly. "'Not a bit of use for anything, I can see.' "'Not a bit.' "'See any shops in Stampton?' "'Nothing to speak of,' said Mr. Polly. "'Good-night, old man.' Before and after this brief conversation, his mind ran on his cousins very warmly and prettily in the vein of high spring. Mr. Polly had been drinking at the poisoned fountains of English literature fountains so unsuited to the needs of a decent clerk or shopman, fountains charged with the dangerous suggestion that it becomes a man of gaiety and spirit to make love, gallantly and rather carelessly. It seemed to him that evening to be handsome and humorous and practicable to make love to all his cousins. It wasn't that he liked any of them particularly but he liked something about them. He liked their youth and femininity, their resolute high spirits, and their interest in him. They laughed at nothing, and knew nothing. And Minnie had lost a tooth, and Annie screamed and shouted, but they were interesting, intensely interesting. And Miriam wasn't so bad as the others. He had kissed them all, and had been kissed in addition several times by Minnie, Oscillatory exercise. He buried his nose in his pillow and went to sleep, to dream of anything rather than getting on in the world as a sensible young man in his position ought to have done. And now Mr. Polly began to lead a divided life. With the Johnsons he professed to be inclined, but not so conclusively inclined as to be inconvenient, to get a shop for himself to be, to use the phrase he preferred, looking for an opening. He would ride off in the afternoon upon that research, remarking that he was going to cast a strategical eye on Chertsey or Weybridge. But if not all roads, uh, still a great majority of them, led by however devious ways to Stamton, and to laughter and increasing familiarity. Relations developed with Annie and Miri and Miriam. Their various characters were increasingly interesting. The laughter became perceptively less abundant. Something of the fizz had gone from the first opening. Still, these visits remained wonderfully friendly and upholding. Then Backy would come to grave but evasive discussions with Johnson. 
Johnson was really anxious to get Mr. Polly into something. His was a reserved, honest character, and he would really have preferred to see his lodger doing things for himself than receive his money for housekeeping. He hated waste, anybody's waste, much more than he desired profit. But Mrs. Johnson was all for Mr. Polly's loitering. She seemed much more human and likeable of the two to Mr. Polly. He tried at times to work up enthusiasm for the various avenues to well-being his discussion with Johnson opened, but they remained disheartening prospects. He imagined himself wonderfully smartened up, acquiring style and value in a London shop, but the picture was stiff and unconvincing. He tried to rouse himself to enthusiasm by the idea of his property increasing by leaps and bounds by twenty pounds a year or so, let us say each year, in a well-placed little shop, the corner shop Johnson favoured. There was a certain picturesque interest in imagining cut-throat economies, but his heart told him there would be little in practising them. And then it happened to Mr. Polly that real romance came out of dreamland into life, and intoxicated and gladdened him with sweetly beautiful suggestions, and left him. She came and left him, as that dear lady leaves so many of us, alas, not sparing him one jot or one tittle of the hollowness of her retreating aspect. It was all the more to Mr. Polly's taste that the thing should happen as things happen in books. In a resolute attempt not to get to Stamton that day, he had turned southward from Easewood towards the country where the abundance of bracken jungles, ladies' smock, stitchwork, bluebells and grassy stretches by the wayside under shady trees does much to compensate the lighter type of mind for the absence of promising openings. He turned aside from the road, wheeled his machine along a faintly marked, attractive trail through bracken, until he came to a heap of logs against a high old stone wall with damaged coping and wallflower plants already gone to seed. He sat down, balanced the straw hat on a convenient lump of wood, lit a cigarette, and abandoned himself to agreeable musings and the friendly observation of a cheerful little brown and grey bird, his stillness presently encouraged to approach him. "'This is all right,' said Mr. Polly softly to the little brown and grey bird. "'Business later.' He reflected that he might go on this way for four or five years, and then be scarcely worse off than he had been in his father's lifetime. "'Vile business,' said Mr. Polly. Then romance appeared, or, to be exact, romance became audible. Romance began as a series of small but increasingly vigorous movements on the other side of the wall, and then as a voice murmuring, then as a falling of little fragments on the hither side, and as ten pink fingertips, scarcely apprehended before romance became startlingly and emphatically a leg remained for a time a fine, slender, actively struggling limb, brown-stockinged and wearing a brown, toe-worn shoe, and then 
a handsome red-haired girl, wearing a short dress of blue linen, was sitting astride the wall, panting, considerably disarranged by her climbing, and as yet unaware of Mr. Polly. His fine instincts made him turn his head away and assume an attitude of negligent contemplation, with his ears and mind alive to every sound behind him. "'Goodness!' said a voice, with a sharp note of surprise. Mr. Polly was on his feet in an instant. "'Dear me, can I be of any assistance?' he said, with deferential gallantry. "'I don't know,' said the young lady, and regarded him calmly with clear blue eyes. "'I didn't know there was any one here,' she added. "'Sorry,' said Mr. Polly, "'if I am intrudacious.' I didn't know you didn't want me to be here." She reflected for a moment on the word. "'It isn't that,' she said, surveying him. "'I ought to get over the wall,' she explained. "'It's out of bounds, at least in term time. But this being holidays—' Her manner placed the matter before him. "'Holidays is different,' said Mr. Polly. "'I don't want to exactly break the rules.' she said. Uh, "'Leave them behind you,' said Mr. Polly, with a catch of the breath, "'where they are safe.' And marvelling at his own wit and daring, and indeed trembling within himself, he held out a hand for her. She brought another brown leg from the unknown, and arranged her skirt with a dexterity altogether feminine. "'I think I'll stay on the wall,' she decided so long as some of me's in bounds." She continued to regard him with eyes that presently joined dancing in an irresistible smile of satisfaction. Mr. Polly smiled in return. "'You bicycle?' she said. Mr. Polly admitted the fact, and she said she did too. "'All my people are in India,' she explained. "'It's beastly rot. I mean, it's frightfully dull being left here alone. "'All my people,' said Mr. Polly, "'are in heaven.' "'I say.' "'Fact,' said Mr. Polly, "'got nobody.' "'And that's why—' She checked her artless comment on his mourning. "'I say,' she said in a sympathetic voice, "'I am sorry. I really am. Was it a fire or a ship or something?' Her sympathy was very delightful. He shook his head. "'The ordinary table of mortality,' he said. First one, and then another.' Behind his outward melancholy, Delight was dancing wildly. "'Are you lonely?' asked the girl. Mr. Polly nodded. "'I was just sitting here in melancholy retrospectatiousness,' he said, indicating the logs and again a swift thoughtfulness swept across her face. "'There's no harm in our talking,' she reflected. "'It's a kindness. Won't you get down?' She reflected, and surveyed the turf below, and the scene around, and him. "'I'll stay on the wall,' she said, "'if only for Bound's sake.' She certainly looked quite adorable on the wall. She had a fine neck and pointed chin that was particularly admirable from below, and pretty eyes and fine eyebrows are never so pretty 
as when they look down upon one. But no calculation of that sort, thank heaven, was going on beneath her ruddy shock of hair. End of chapter 5, section 3